If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. This is a combination of a project that I've had to understand about the ways in which human beings are productive. Uh, The first volume, The Craftsman, was about the ways in which people interact with the physical world to make things and make them well. It's about craftsmanship, just as as it says in the packet. Uh, The second book is really about how people cooperate with each other in the process of making things. And it's got a title in English I've never been happy with called Together. The German title is much better, Zusammenarbeit. That is the work of trying to be together. Much better. And the, this book, which is about the building the built environment, looks at a fundamental problem in the built environment, which is the relationship between the way it's built and the way people live in it. That's why it's called building and and dwelling. I thought I would just read the opening page or two of this so that you got an idea of this to me, uh, this relationship between building a city, the craft of building it, and living in a city, is an asymmetry. They don't fit neatly together. And I want to explain to you a little about why that is, just so you understand, as we say in my old country, where I'm coming from. In early Christianity, city stood for two cities, the city of God and the city of man. St. Augustine used the city as a metaphor for God's design of faith. But the ancient reader of St. Augustine, who wandered the alleys, markets, and forums of Rome, would get no hint of how God works as a city planner. Even as this Christian metaphor waned, the idea persisted that city means two different things one a physical place, the other a mentality compiled from perceptions, behaviors, and beliefs. And the French language first came to sort out this distinction by using two different words, ville and cité, city with an E at the end and an accent uh, grave. Initially, these named big and small, Ville referred to the overall city, whereas Cité designated a particular place. Sometime in the 16th century, the Cité came to mean the character of life in a neighborhood, the feelings people harbored about neighbors and strangers and attachments to place. This old distinction has faded today, at least in France, A cité now most often refers to those grim locales which warehouse the poor on the outskirts of towns. The older usage is worth reviving, though, because it describes a basic distinction. The built environment is one thing, and how people dwell in it is another. Today in New York, if you know New York at all, Traffic jams at our very poorly designed tunnels belong to the Cité, whereas the rat race driving many New Yorkers to the tunnels at dawn belongs to the Cité. Sorry. Today in New York, traffic jams at the poorly designed tunnels belong to the Veal, whereas the rat race driving many New Yorkers to the tunnel at dawn belongs to the Cité. Now, The most important thing about 
this distinction is that it's asymmetric. And that's important because people assume that the built environment should follow the way in which we want to live. It should reflect our, our desires for, for the way we want to live. I don't believe this. In my view, there are, there are situations in which the makers of the veal, the craftsmen of, of place, should contest the way people live. And I'm just going to give you one example of this. The first planning job I had was in Boston. At the beginning of the 1960s, a new school was proposed for a working class area in Boston. Would it be racially integrated or segregated, as were most working class parts of the city in those days? If integrated, we planners would have to provide large parking and holding spaces for buses to bring black children to and from school. The white parents resisted integration covertly by claiming the community needed more green space, not bus parking lots. Planners ought to serve the community rather than impose an alien set of values. What right did people like me, Harvard-educated, armed with sheaths of statistics on segregation and impeccably executed blueprints, what right did we have to tell the bus drivers, cleaners, and industrial workers of South Boston how to live? I am glad to say that my bosses stood their ground. They did not succumb to class guilt. And still, the jaggedness between lived and built cannot be resolved simply by the planner displaying ethical uprightness. In this case, in our case, this only made things worse. Our virtue signaling, do you say that in England? Our virtue signaling, breeding more anger among the white public. And this is the ethical problem I see in cities today. Should urbanism represent society as it is, or seek to change it. The cité and the ville cannot fit together seamlessly, in my view. So what is then to be done? And that's a problem I address in my book. Now, I don't have the solution to this problem, but over the course of my life as both an academic and also as a working planner, I've evolved a set of ideas about how this asymmetry should be addressed. And that consists of thinking about how to open a city up in, as I say, my wonderfully inexpensive, beautifully <laughs> produced book. I try and lay out some of the groundworks of something called open systems theory, familiar to any of you who have studied engineering or physics, how that might apply to the city. And my idea in this is that by opening the city up, by making it a more open system, we can enrich people's experience in such a way that they might become more able to live with people who are unlike themselves. That is, I've tried to answer this question that I first saw in this planning job. I was, you know, I was a gopher, and, 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 as one is in this world. But I saw it even then, that there needed to be some way of building the city so that people were more willing to live with their presence in and next to, with, people who are different than themselves in terms of race, which is the great American uh, drama. And the same thing would apply to class or economic inequality. 
how can you desegregate a city which has divided itself up into rich and poor, or to those fine grades between upper middle class and lower middle class? Same thing with, you could think of this problem as a problem of age. How do you get rich and poor people, uh, old and young people, living together rather than separated? The old, like me, farmed out to residential communities and the young stuck in bars. You know, that's the kind of issue I try to address in this book. Oh, I should tell you something about, about this problem in, in terms of my professional life working in the UN. I think it was, I had my midlife crisis, I'm very old, I had my midlife crisis somewhere in the 1980s. And at that point, I got tired of doing urban projects in New York. This is an incredibly rich city, poor city as well, but very rich. And uh, very, uh, to me, I, I, I didn't care anymore about it. I, I, planning Commission, I, I mean, I, I just somehow, I, I wanted to turn a leaf. And this was the same time at which cities in the third world were beginning to explode with growth. So I gave up my planning practice in New York and I started working with the UN, originally with UNESCO, then I worked for a time with, uh, with an agency called UNDP, which is a planning and investment part of the UN. And most recently, I've been working with UN Habitat on the projects that culminated something called Habitat 3. I wanted to change, but what I found and going to work in these emerging cities like Delhi or Shanghai was that the West had exported to many of these places the worst aspects of the way it was planning cities. And that people were taking this on board as this is the future, this is the modern way, overturning perfectly viable ways of living in the city because they seemed backward. They weren't developed. And the trajectory that we, I and many of my colleagues in UNDP in particularly took was to learn how to get that prejudice out of our minds and how to look at ways in which people in emergent cities had ways of dwelling and of planning that were viable, that didn't involve the importation of mass highways, housing blocks filled of rich people separated from favelas and so on. The ideas about opening up the city I came, I came to were really bred out of that, and I'm just telling them my own life, were bred out of that, um, of seeing, as it were, the sins of the West adopted by the East, if you want to put it in those terms. There are, in my book, this is the last thing I'll say to you about this. In my book, I look at three strategies, and I focus on three strategies for opening up uh, cities. One is to make them much more porous places. That is, and I'll explain that to you briefly. The edges of cities are usually no man's lands or places that are abandoned. The edges of communities. Similarly, the edges between functional spaces in the city, between where people live and where they work. There are lots of dead zones between them. And in the cities I new in, uh, in America, and we're seeing again in uh, places like Delhi. Uh, this was true of religious groups in Delhi, also caste, caste groups which live in different places, 
as well as simple economics. So my idea was that we can bring more life to the city by focusing on the edges between places rather than their centers. In practical terms, this meant that, and this wasn't my idea at all, uh, alone. I mean, many people came to the same feeling. That when we built a health clinic, for instance, that health clinic should go between two communities rather than in the center of the community. That we had to get away from the idea that communal identity was the most important thing to strengthen in the city. We should make it messier by making the lines between communities more porous, less defined, uh, that the notion of having a defined identity in a city was a way of withdrawing and closing off from other people. So that is a planning strategy you know, we have in the last 15 years pursued and it's part of what are now called the millennial goals of the UN. Don't ask me what it means, but it's, it sounds good. The second thing we began experimenting with, which I describe in my book, is a notion of incomplete built form. Most poor places in the developing, in emerging cities in the developing world are built by sweat labor. You know, in a barrio or favela, you grab a piece of disused land, you put up some cinder blocks and a tin roof on the top, and that's home. And then if you can grab on into urban life, over the course of a generation or two generations, you know, the cinder block will gradually be, it'll be mortared in, the tin roof will be replaced by something a little uh, more stable, a latrine might be dug in the street rather than as in most favelas, just a, a hole in the corner of, of a house. So we began thinking about this. This is for the majority of people moving to cities. I'm giving you an extreme condition, okay? But for the majority of people moving into cities, they are appropriating places which they are having to build themselves rather than moving into housing for them. We began to think, let's be smart about this. Let's actually create conditions where people can use their sweat equity, poor people, but in which the bones, the infrastructure, is of better quality than simply digging a latrine in the street and so on. And as in the work, the most famous but the least well-known, the work of Enrique Aravena, his notion is build half a good house and let people fill it in. The planners should invest not in functional buildings, but in shells. And that's what we are now funding. Very difficult for, for bankers in the World Bank to tell them you're going to build us, but all you're going to see is a plumbing stack, an electricity shaft, and four bare walls, because they want to see something that actually works which this kind of incomplete building doesn't. But it is a strategy. Again, it's open to whatever people do, but you give them a helping hand to move along. And the third thing that I want to talk about is the ways in which what has been, been called my obsession with cafe tables, and I'm going to tell you exactly what this is about. Most slums are not very pleasant. They're what Giorgio Ogamben calls bare life. You know, they're stripped down. And one of the things I have wanted to do, I mean, I love house decorating, so I suppose this comes psychologically out of it, is to use, mark the urban environment in some ways arbitrarily with things like painted cafe tables or buying people flower pots that can support uh, not just house plants, but actual trees and pots. 
In other words, to make arbitrary markers of value in places which have no value. Uh, this is dismissed in most urbanism as street furniture investment. Why should you do, invest in things like that when people are starving or you know they're dying of cholera or something like that? My point about this is that if you want people to take ownership over the communities in which they live, they have to feel that there's something about those communities which transcends bare life, which has elements of pleasure in it, and even of art. And so another one of these sustainability goals, I, I can't, we disguise this very carefully because it is basically decoration. But the idea about it is that to make people feel not that they're merely existing, but that there is something of value in the places where they are that you've imposed arbitrarily on it. You've given it a value. At the extreme from my cafe table, I wanted to buy, at one point, I wanted to buy 200,000 versions of uh, IKEA manufactures, a wonderful cafe uh, table in, with rust-proof paint. And I, uh, but this didn't fly. But the extreme version of this is the work that's been done in Medellin in uh, Colombia, where famous architects have built wonderful libraries in the midst of this barrio. It's a complete disjunction. You know, the city put their money into these libraries because there's something that the community can take pride in, can feel a sense of ownership about. These are spaces that haven't got a single graffito on them. They're policed by the community. Kids, I, I describe in my book, uh, my wife and I being taken on a tour by these little eight or 10 year old kids who know ex were, were called something like exposition officers. They, they loved it. Of course they loved it. And so I would say the third way of opening up a city for poor people is to create uh, scenes and investments of arbitrary value rather than reflect the community as it is. Put things that don't fit into a situation like that. And the result of that, I think, is a greater investment in keeping the community well. But those are three ways to open up a poor community so that it is less isolated and identified as being poor by making its edges porous, by making it some place that is incomplete, that needs people's investment, time, their sweat equity to build up, and by imposing from the outside arbitrary markers of value that don't exist in the community. That's kind of planning lingo in this. I just end, I'm very chatty, aren't I? So, you're so patient. I have questions. I know you. <laughs> we know each other. Just to end by saying that in writing this book, I realized that this experience that I've mostly had in the developing world comes home, I think, even in so rich a place as London, which is full of sealed boundaries rather than porous borders in many ways, in which more incomplete building requires here much more communal participation than we have now. What's called here community consultation is a joke. It's a farce. You know, an expert gets up shows 20 slides, images in the matter of five minutes, and says, yes or no, we've consulted. There isn't the notion that the work of building a place is a long-term thing that requires the input continually of the people who live there. And finally, and this is something I've noticed about housing estates here in particular, the idea of imposing value on them to, give the, to make them more than scenes of bare life is considered a kind of a sin. It's the ultimate capitalist mentality, you know, that poor people shouldn't be spoiled, you know? Well, it's 30 years of an assault on 
housing in right, British right. policy making. But you mustn't spoil poor people. It's bad for their characters. And my view is that they <laughs> precisely the opposite. That if you want to make responsible people out of people who are living at the margins, that they get something which is more than bare life in their housing. So those are some of the themes in this book and about which you have questions. Thank you, Richard. So we've talked quite a lot about the open city and mechanisms for opening up the city. One of my favorite parts of the book was your polemic, actually, against aspects of the closed city. And I think it's fair to say that you're not really a polemicist. You know, you're not, not. An, you're not an angry writer. But this part of the book was quite angry, which is possibly why I liked it. <laughs> it was the part of the book where you talk about the Googleplex and the oh. stupefying smart city. And I'd just like us to talk a little bit about the stupefying smart city, which, as you can tell, is quite the opposite to the open city and why that is such a stupefying environment. There's a, there's a great passage where Richard visits the Googleplex in New York and describes this infantile play area. But it's, these are themes which can be extracted more widely to smart cities in Songdo or privatised public spaces, which are, which are all around us. And I just wanted you to talk a little bit about why this is so stupefying for us. Well, I'm not against all smart cities. I'm against a certain kind of smart city which does the thinking for you. And it uses algorithmic calculations in order to, to make decisions for you rather than give you the data on which to make decisions. And it does, it sells that in the name of user-friendly. Once you buy into the logic of a user-friendly place, somebody else is going to make it friendly for you, particularly if it's a city filled with lots of different kinds of people, very diverse people, and so on. The Googleplex, and I should say, every time you use Google Maps, you can't ask Siri or what's her name, Amanda, Alexa, what is the most interesting way to get from A to B? Because she's not interested in that question, but you should be. You want to learn about the place you're in. The Googleplex itself in New York, I snuck in. I had a student. We were kicked out eventually. Uh, I had a student who was working for them and quitting in the last night she was working, so we snuck in. It's a, I t I'll tell you a little about it, because it was, it was to me the very essence of what closure is about. The Googleplex is on 15th and 8th Avenue, which if any of you know New York, is one of the toughest areas of New York City. It's full of rent boys, drug addicts, uh, prostitutes, female prostitutes. It's got a lot of poor people. It's got housing estates around it. And here in the middle of it sits this Googleplex, which was a former FedEx shipping thing, and before that, a uh, electric company, something. They've hollowed the whole thing out so that people inside never have to go outside into this urban environment. You, can, you, know, you know how these Googleplexi work. You know, get your laundry done. You can visit the doctor, chill out. In ours, people were taking. They had a dealer who brought in who brought in coke. I, you know, it was a complete. It was a complete environment, com totally divorced from the outside. And now Thomas Heatherwick, the British architect, is building a, a top story on it, which means that even nature can be confined within these controlled spaces at Googleplex. That's basically the vision that many of the big firms who are writing the software for smart cities have about how a city should work. That there should be no exploration 
and no resistance, which is what I, I think is really important about this. To become a competent urbanite, to be able to deal with difference and complexity, you have to learn how to manage resistance. It's very striking to me that in American schools, uh, universities, certain kind of university, in which you're supposed to be warned in advance if something might be disturbing to you. I can't remember what it's called. Yeah. So that you never hear anything disturbing. I would have quit the first day I worked for the UN within an hour if I had followed, followed that logic. I mean, it's part of becoming an adult, which is you learn to work with resistances, which are called other people, and uh, <laughs> rather than withdraw from them. But this smart, the, the way in which the algorithms are being written for these smart cities is to replace that learning through resistance, through prehension, we were talking about the anticipation of difficulty and so on to replace that with a user-friendly city. And that, I think, is stupefying. It doesn't stimulate the human being, either cognitively nor psychologically. Somebody who has had unalloyed experience of gratification and pleasure is at most, I don't know, six weeks old? Why should we be using high tech to create these infantile but, but I think it's, it's also that once you become so used to this space, this high security, hermetically sealed space where everything is done for you, you actually can't cope without yes. all of that around you. I mean, when I was writing right. Ground Control, one of yeah. the examples that stayed with me the most is a woman who lived in a gated community. And uh, she'd lived 20 years on a normal London street. And she'd just bought this property in a gated development because she liked it, not because she had any interest in gated communities. Yeah. And one night, the gates on the development went wrong and were propped open. But, you know, her front yeah. door was locked, as per usual, yeah. just like the same yeah. level of security to the world she'd previously had. Right. And she was, you know, she had a terrible night. She couldn't sleep all night because she'd lost that extra level of security. And the next morning, she chatted to her next-door neighbor, and he'd had the exact same experience. So as you become used to all of these things being done for you, being there to protect you, a certain sort of external environment, very controlled environment, actually you lose your ability to cope. Absolutely. And Absolutely. I mean, you have this phrase, the, the, the friction-free world, which right. again, very similar to, to your concept of right. resistance, isn't it? Right. I think this is, this is a real drama for young architects and planners now. Because a high security gated community uh, building or gated community is the most popular form of building throughout the world. And the ethical dilemma, I think, that, well, any planner or architect should face is that they should refuse to make gated communities. I believe they should be outlawed. You know, I'm, I mean, I think they should be illegal, but that's not going to happen. But this is a great moral crisis, because that's where the work is. High security work, if you learn how to do it, you know, triple doors and you know, all of that, you know, you've got a job. But it's immoral to do this. They, these, these kinds of communities are self-destructive and destructive to any notion of civility between people. Just to, in the ways you're talking And I mean, about. I think all of this goes to the heart of what really drives the book, which is this notion of the ethics <clears throat> of the city. You have your discussion of the ville and the cité, but actually it's the ethics of the city, I think, which are uh -huh. also really inspiring yeah. a lot of the ideas. And the ethics of the city, which enable us to live in diverse right. communities with people who are very different from each other. I mean, you have this passage in the book where you talk about fear of the other. 
and how actually by living together we can overcome that fear of the this other. This is your book. Well, next, your next book. <laughs> this is something I'm interested in as well. Yes. But it's, this these, is a book these, you have to write. These are ideas that are actually quite difficult to convey to audiences because a lot of them are couched in psychoanalytic language and Richard I think does manage to <laughs> explain this to a large extent I, but perhaps you can do it a bit better than I can Richard. No I'm just waiting for your book. I, I, <laughs> well the one thing I would say about this uh, which is distinctive to this book is I don't believe in different people getting together through dialogue. I have an entirely physical, non-verbal sense of what it means to open up a city. That people are bodily comfortable with other people who, who are unlike themselves. And I mean, it's actually something, I've worked a lot in Shanghai, and I remember the, this wonderful woman, I describe her in my book, who said to me, you know what the real problem is here is that people who have wealth in Shanghai are afraid that people who are not as wealthy are dirty and that they're afraid physically to come into contact with them because they're dirty. They, the dirt might rub off on them. So this was a problem for her in thinking about how to build a subway, which as you know is not a it's not a thing where you can isolate yourself easily from other people. But I think, to me, the task now is not more commissions on interfaith understanding and so on. It's getting somebody comfortable if they live next to a mosque or see somebody praying five times a day on, on the ground that the kind of planning I, that really matters to me is nonverbal and physical rather than, I mean, I, of course, you, you can't get rid of dialogic sorts of exchanges. But I would be much happier, well, I put it this way, the best thing I think I did in New York, although I failed in many ways as a, as a planner, was that I built, or I caused to have built, a grocery store under a superhighway in Harlem where whites predominantly from the Upper West Side and blacks from West Harlem came together to, the store was open 24 hours a day, to buy the odd cup of milk, you know, or a bottle of booze or whatever. That you could see people physically in the same lines, checking out. That to me felt like one of the few successes I had in New York. They weren't having mutual racial understanding. They were simply, you know, a lady in a fur coat and her maid buying a bottle of milk together. So it comes back to your idea of porosity. It where is you porosity, can yeah. Create quite ordinary spaces where different people will come together right, right and they're just ordinary spaces where it's, banal ordinary interactions take it's place an, it's an ethics of presence that's how i think of it and it's banal yeah yeah i think that's one of the hardest things for people to understand well for, for policy makers to understand that you're just proposing you know ordinary everyday solutions. But I think it's quite easy, well not easy, but it's a lot easier to do this sort of thing in a city like London, which is in fact already a very tolerant and diverse city right. for all its privatized spaces and gated communities. But in other cities which are not, which are much more homogenous, much less diverse, actually that would be a lot more challenging. Right. And right. it would have to somehow be integrated on a policy level. What do you, difference do you think Brexit will make to London in that regard? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm curious. I, I really, I've lived here a long time, but I don't really understand. Uh, I don't understand either. It's not a question I'm able to answer. I see London as really separate from so much of the rest of the, the country. country. Uh, so overwhelmingly was a, a well, remain like city. But yeah. I feel that a lot of these discussions around fear of the other 
actually are very germane to the discussion around uh, Brexit. Brexit. Yeah, I do too. But what I've wondered, I'll tell you what's been in my mind about this, and then maybe we should talk, is that London has been the capital of Europe in the last 20 years, you know, culturally as well as economically. And I just, you know, you, Walter Benjamin talked about Paris as the capital of the 19th century. It, it wasn't an economic, it wasn't a political thing, but it was a kind of economic innovation, artistic, uh, a kind of civil society capital of Europe. Now, and we've been that. And I just wonder whether we'll continue to be that or whether the dynamism of people coming here, so many people coming here, if when that dies, that the city will die a bit too. Yeah, I'm just hoping that. I'm hoping it doesn't happen. happen. <laughs> well, if you agree with us, the greatest hope is that they are so incompetent. Well, they, they are. That it'll never happen. You know, they'll never be able to. They, they've had another afternoon of disaster, evidently. Uh, they were supposed to work out their policy about what Brexit is about, and evidently. But I think before we get too you do, down let's, that yeah, road, yeah, let's not do that. I think maybe let's open, open it up. up. Shall we? I'm fascinated by what you said about the ethics of presence, but I'm curious if that still works when everybody's looking down at a smartphone in the queue for their milk and sort of because as far as I'm concerned we're all in a Googleplex we're in our own mini Googleplexes well I would think that a lot of that is what's on the smartphone I mean you can use it as an instrument you know and it's a wonderful instrument in some ways you know about my missing staffers in Guta, you know, I'm relying on this. I need that. I think the problem is that what's sold on the smartphone is a kind of diversion against <coughs> loneliness. And that's not the fault of the smartphone. It's something that's gone wrong in the society. It's more than that, though, isn't it? It's not 10 years ago when I was walking down the street I wasn't lonely on my way to the tube if I didn't check my emails or, you know, yeah. respond to a, a buzz. It's somehow that algorithm, there's, there's an addiction that, that's come, come into play where we just feel that we have to connect with it all the time. Do you think... And, and again, it, it's that kind of, our, our, we, we've, we've been yeah. rewired. Well, a lot of yeah. us have been. Yeah. Do you think that that could fade in time? I think if actually a lot of the risks associated with this excessive use that a lot of us are suffering from, I mean, they're, they're coming out more and more, aren't they? Yeah. Aren't they? I mean, you know, I think a lot of people are trying to take detoxes and stop using, you know, stop the excessive reliance. I like that. Possibly, you know, in, in five years' time, ten years' time, kids won't be so reliant. We may have reached sort of peak smartphone use, usage or it just may be a sort of post-human condition that we're moving towards and you know it's just part of our existence I mean it's it's very difficult to say yeah I, I really don't know the answer to your question I mean I know that it's in its present form it's destructive smart cities built on that they, they are isolating I, I don't know, maybe it's a phenomenon of old age. I have a lot more faith in people than I used to. <laughs> Somehow I think, even despite all the evidence of Boris Johnson and, and, and Donald Trump, somehow I think that people are better than that, you know? That they don't necessarily, they don't have to necessarily sink to that level. What I don't like, our, our research group, Tertramundi is doing a lot of exploration about how to use technology well in the city. And I think there are, there, I think there are ways you can use it well. It's just that it, what's saleable is using it badly. That is in this kind of Googleplex, you know, Googleplex-like uh, formulation of easy to use and so on. 
I, I just tell you a story about this. I'm, I'm sorry, I won't go on about this. When I, I, I taught for a long time at MIT, and at MIT, these engineers being supported by Microsoft in something called the Media Lab at MIT, their hobby was making Microsoft programs abort or posing them questions for which the, pro the programs were not prepared. Things like, they type in things like, where is the best school if I want to meet girls? <laughs> machine would, you know, it would just, it would freeze up, you know, it could understand all the parts of it, but this required qualitative judgment. And somehow I just have faith in human beings that they want to do this, they want to have a, uh, they want to be intelligent. But I think we're at the nadir of this, and it has to do with the fact that this is really the toy aspect has enabled a kind of monopoly capitalism to grow up with this. There are people who are essentially providing computerized toys, you know, rather than tools. In the days when people could choose to move to a, a big city like London from a smaller place, which was from my youth many centuries ago, um, I really chose to move, and a lot of people like me chose to move to London because we didn't want to live in geographical communities, communities right. of place, to live in elective communities. You essentially choose who you associate with, you, you assemble your own set of associates rather than having to deal with the people in your village who... You, so actually people are moving to cities to go into the opposite direction from the direction you seem to want them to go. Um, you know, in, in a way they were sorting out their own mixture of people rather than having, having the mixture that was thrown at them. So they were sort oh, of creating their own sort mean. of mental gated communities in the sense of, you know, only associating with people they considered to be people they wished to associate with. I see what you mean. So that might be a problem. I, I would typify this in another way. I think that a lot of voluntary migration to cities is for people who want to get away from <coughs> the moral rigidities of a face-to-face -face community. I, I look at it rather differently, that the freedom in the city, you know, whether you're gay or whatever, is that you're not being judged as a person that somebody knows. And that's why I argue in the book that impersonality is a form of freedom. It's why we want porosity. We want people to get out of their silos. And I think a lot of voluntary, and this isn't true for, for economic immigrants, but for those young people coming off the farms, you know, to the big city, the thing is, um, Willa Cather, the American author, once said this so wonderfully. She said, when she moved to Greenwich Village, at last nobody knows me. You know, there's a, that's a very profound statement in a way that you're, and it's a political statement as well. You're not under group control, group observation. And, and I mean, I think the, the, the element, the sort of top-down element of trying to provide places where a diverse group of people may come together like your grocery store. I mean, it's voluntary. You know, you don't have to go to that grocery right. store. Right. But actually, yeah. you know, it became very popular. It did, yeah. <laughs> yes, but not because people wanted to be with, you know, people richer or, in this case, poorer. The genius of this was one of the first organic food stores in New York City. Uh, it was originally something called a Fairway, which was part of uh, Whole Foods, which is now a, a horrible chain that you have in Britain. Well, this was the first one. And the idea in America of getting a radish that hasn't been sp sprayed in chlorine was so amazing to people that it overcame these differences of race and class. <laughs> The unsprayed radishes, maybe, maybe that's the solution. <laughs> Thank you. I have a comment and a question. I'm, I've always been very compelled by your ideas about the open city, but also 
aware that they emerge from your work in developing cities. And I'm not sure I see anything here that, well, I have to think about it, that will disrupt the kind of dynamic of unregulated development and capitalism that's destroying a place like London. I, I'm not sure in these principles I see anything that would, that could reverse that dynamic. Um, but Mike, but I, but I really want to ask you about this third, the one that you're most apologetic about, the, <laughs> the, the one that's the, of arbitrary the, the one that's well, you and the one that seems so frivolous uh, because I'm an art and architectural historian and I'm also always making these arguments about the importance of the aesthetic in the experience of the city. And I wonder what you think about um, two sort of bodies of thinking, one more popular uh, that has seen the um, return of the discourse of beauty to, to urban planning uh, and these large-scale surveys that, uh, that, that take this highly subjective contested term to be the thing that actually brings together people of very disparate backgrounds and incomes and something that can really unify them within a place. So there have been all of these, you know, res publica reports upon, about the right to beauty among the poor. And then on the other side, um, you know, landscape architects like Elizabeth Meyer, who've written on sustaining beauty. And once again, this idea that unless we have a place to which, which nurtures a kind of aesthetic connection, we don't develop the kinds of commitments that would lead to caring for a place or making or sustaining yeah. it. So, so I know that well, you've carefully talked about value, but not beauty. And I'm well, I, I wouldn't talk about beauty because I don't think the aesthetic is simply a question of the beautiful. That's a discussion we could have over many scotches. But what I would say about this is that in a way, the, to me, the tragedy of modernism was that it became, it intersected with the notion of utility rather than any other kind of value in the built environment. I talk about this in the book in terms of Le Corbusier's uh, Plan Voisin. And I mean, I find many modernist buildings beautiful. I find the Barbican uh, a wonderful space. You know, it's brutalist, so on. Beautiful, I wouldn't call it, but it's a wonderful, it's got great aesthetic value. But I think what happened in the last century was that what could have been very liberating in modernism, and Bauhaus and Gropius, people like that, instead became yoked to a kind of capitalist way of investing that took away the aesthetic from the modern. And just as a, as a planner, what I would say is what we have to find is not going, not doing a Prince Charles, you know, but finding ways in which we can use the materials and forms of our own time to make something that's expressive to people. Now, the reason I'm on about these cafe chairs is that, or things like that, street plastic street planters, which I, I also believe in is that they are easily accessible ways of marking an environment that is more than utilitarian. There's no use of them. And that was a very, I, it was, uh, I say this because it's now, now in the public realm, I had a long, long fight with people in the World Bank about investing in, for poor people, in things that weren't utilitarian. And I, as I say, I think you've got the same you know, sickness here when these estates. I mean, are, I, I, I'm, I'll have to quickly jump in on that yes, because do. I mean, I, I, we, you don't really discuss 
modernist estates in the UK in the book, so we haven't talked about it. Uh, yeah. You know, in terms of the beauty agenda, the Respublica reports, modernist estates in London in particular. I mean, you know, as you said, beauty is a very contested term and there's a very political agenda behind a lot of that work, which has been very much tied up with the demolition of housing estates in London and their yeah. replacement with largely luxury apartments with a very small percentage yeah. of affordable housing. And that very much ties in with your comments about the you know, rapacious development and capitalism in, in London in particular. So I actually like a lot of modernist estates and I think a, lo a lot of estate building also was part of a sort of monopoly situation in, in the, the 50s and 60s, which gave us a lot of places which betrayed their original idealistic principles. But, you know, I wouldn't let those that discourse get away with claiming it's about beauty because it's not, uh -huh. in my view. It's, it's another package of a conversation, perhaps not directly related to what you cover here. Just struck by this, and particularly what Anna was saying, just, I mean, the one thing that's left from the Haygate estate are the, the plane trees that they planted, and they're, they're the sort of main focus of the new elephant park that they built there. Um, and um, much of this um, interest in planting street trees <clears throat> and the thing that you were talking about doing planters, yeah. not something they started with the um, ethical socialism, the independent Labour Party in Rotherhithe and <clears throat> Bermondsey in the 1920s. And uh, there was no, no greenery in the area and that they, they literally gave people planters and somewhere to collect yeah. the earth. And then they were asked, they were just given that as a kind of, and it changed the whole place. I don't know what my point is, but I mean, the point is that-, that, that, that <laughs> You don't that, have that, to have that, a point. That this, the right. legacy of these things, you, you have no idea, they, they're here now, you know, the trees, the mature right. trees, et cetera, et cetera. And this was a beautification project. And I think the value of that in relation to, you know, it's, 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 that's the thing that was really transformed the era because it gave people a sense of, you know, they want, she wanted the area to be as beautiful as Paris, as yeah. beautiful as Dulwich, an area that had none of those things. And they were, they were not allowed to pay for it. They, from the London County Council, they had to find money of elsewhere and, yeah. and find ways, kind of really, interesting ways to, to make Well, you know, the, the one thing I'd say about that, and I want to come to you, is that part of the shift from in urbanism from traditional architecture to landscape architecture is, which is a big shift professionally for us, is because we can make more, much more of a difference and leave much more of a trace through working on landscapes than we can working on, on buildings. I did some work, some reconstruction work in Beirut after uh, the Civil War, this was a long time ago. And we started with planting trees, which had all been cut down so that people, you know, had clear sights to shoot at other people. And that's been the most durable legacy. I mean, much of Beirut is colonized by a Saudi firm. But this has been a lasting legacy that we've left. And it really changed my mind. I was very snooty, like most New Yorkers, about nature, you know? But it's really changed my mind about just what you're saying, that this, and I think it's with other people too, that, that the front line of doing community development it should really be landscaping and landscape work. Is there a version of the smart city um, that is more positive in your view, given um, massive population growth and the destruction of our planet? I'd be interested to hear if there's a positive version of that. Yes, there is. And uh, you can find it in Brazil, which is now using smart city technologies, not sold by Google, to do uh, participatory budgeting, for instance. Lyon is a city which has used 
an app which deals with imaging to do co-production of between planners and residents of the spaces in the city. What you're doing there is using, rather than doing prescriptive use of technology, you're using the technology as a tool to aid in cooperation. And in my cooperation book, which I think is here somewhere, I'm really interested in what kind of technological thinking enables people more generally to do this. We know it can be done. You can do it in planning, and you can certainly do it in resource distribution, which is what the Brazilians do. But they had a struggle. They couldn't take a, tech, a program off the shelf and use it. It's actually a modification of something that's developed in Linux, which, as you know, is an open source program. Could I say about this that what's happened to the city mirrors what's happened to high tech? That just as the tech world has closed, what were open, essentially, opens as an open source, multi-user, very participatory, just as that's closed down to a few monopolies. The same thing is true in the building of cities, which are done by a few firms that use generic models. You'll see one in my, in my book for skyscrapers in, in Tokyo. Off the shelf, it's the, the forces that, that have shut down open technology are exactly the same political economy that's shut down the building of places. And it's why I think I'm not very political in this. Well, I am political. I think the most important thing that we could do in this generation politically is attack monopolies. You know, that, that monopoly capitalism, which is something that when Harry Braverman wrote his wonderful book on monopoly capitalism, everybody said, oh, that's all the past. But we're living in an age of monopoly. And in the built environment and the electronic environment, and it just seems to me that's, that's the most prescient thing we have to attack. Well, maybe your next book should be really political. About monopoly capitalism. My God, I go back to my roots. Let's have one final question. Yes. You've written in, the, in previous books very persuasively about work, about productive activity. Yeah. Very simple question. What's the role for industry in your vision of the open city? It's a very simple one, which is that what I would like to see is uh, the decentralization of industries. And, uh, I mean, it's just, you know, it's dumb. My idea is a stupid one. That, and it's based on, actually, research my wife has done about, about the effect of decentralization of industries on the labor market. And it produces more labor. As you can see from, what's the water company that's just shed 4,000 people today? Thames Water. I mean, if you're a giant company and you're doing many things, if, you know, the water industry is not part of, you just get rid of it in your portfolio. If what you do is provide water, that's what you, you either sink or swim by doing that. So the argument in, the book about industry is a book called The Culture of the New Capitalism. It's just about that. But the cards are stacked against us. In this country, the Labor Party has not taken, it's amazing to me that such a good guy as Jeremy Corbyn has not taken on the fact of monopoly as a key element in capitalist domination. You know? It's not wages. You know, it's that the structure of these firms uh, inevitably leads to tyranny. Yeah, well, a, they are talking about nationalization of utilities very much. Well, I don't think they should be nationalized. I think they should be regionalized or cityized. 
I mean, there's a, a limit. Of course, you have to have economies of scale and so on. But so many of the, of the services that we have in cities could be run locally. It doesn't take a multinational to make a cup of coffee, you know? So why not forbid things like Starbucks? You know, that's, that's what I'm thinking about. Do you know what I mean? When the choice is between a local provider and a global provider, you take the local. You've just got to, I think, think of monopoly as inherently stupefying and counterproductive, both. That's why I'm against it. That's why I think London, you know, should. I mean, things like electricity, sewage, you know, there are, there are agglomeration utilities that you can get, but not many. And I, I was just walking around, you know, I know, I know this part of Bloomsbury very well from, from being a student here. It, there are very few local enterprises left here. Rents are too high. Right. And the only people that can pay them are people that are making global profits. So on that happy note. <laughs> Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.